Hi, I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and thanks to your malt mates at Cry Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation. Beer is a Conversation is our weekly sit-down with some of the people who make the beer industry the interesting and dynamic thing that it is. And through these conversations, we dig a little deeper into the stories behind the business of beer and brewing. And this week, I chat hops with the team at Yakima Chief Hops. And joining me were Ryan Hopkins, the Chief Sales Officer, Patrick Smith, Vice President, Loftus Ranchers, and Joe Catron, Operations Manager, Yakima Chief Ranchers. I caught up with them because a few weeks ago, I was in Nuremberg to check out the mother of all brewing trade shows, Brau Bevial. And while I was there, I was struck by the presence that US hop growers had. Hop-forward US-style beers hardly have a presence in the very traditional German market, and I was curious to find out whether this presence was an investment in the future of hops, trying to create a market for US hops and US styles in Germany, or if it was in response to an already growing market, one that I wasn't aware of. I also noted that on our recent trip to the US, Pete and I had noticed a growing number of traditional German pilsners in the US market, so I wondered whether the reverse is actually true and traditional German beers could be winning some ground back, and if that was the case, what that would mean for US hop growers. It's a fun, lively chat from the noisy floor of Brow, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, Ryan, John, Patrick, welcome very much to uh, Beers of Conversation, live from uh, Brau Bevial in Nuremberg. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? I am very good, but uh, how are you guys going? It's been a busy day. I'll tell you what, I have to say, I've, there were six or seven halls of you know, exhibits, anything in the brewing industry, and yet it seems that the, the hop growers are the ones that have the busiest stands. Is it because you've got the, the, the hoppiest beer? I think it's uh, two things. We've had a long tradition here at Brow, so I think this is our 19th year of having a stand in Brow. Uh, and clearly, what we do is a lot different than a lot of German hop growers uh, or European hop growers. And because we're American hop growers with these big, giant varieties and serving IPAs at our booth, yeah, we're a little, a little over capacity here at the booth today. <laughs> but who's coming? Did you get a chance to find out who's? coming by is it the German brewers wanting and, and, and the, the German uh, industry people coming or is it the everyone from around the world who wants what they know and love even though they're in Germany it's it's mostly European brewers we have a few uh, US brewers here but it's mostly from all over Europe so far away is Russia all the way through Italy all, all parts of the continent are represented here today and we have home brewers commercial brewers big brewers small brewers new brewers Beer lovers. I mean, it's it's a lot of excitement here at the booth. But it's interesting because one of the reasons I wanted to come to to Brau in Germany is I was here a couple of years ago and I went to Weinstefan, some of the classic breweries, to try the you know, classic German lagers, and there was a real resistance from the brewers um, talking about you know those, those hop beers. You can't taste the beer. You know, as, as if hops aren't part of beer, and that. There was resistance to it, and we are starting to see pockets of craft beer even in Germany. But it's, it, it was almost a surprise to see a, you know, a stand like this celebrating you know, the, the, the brash, punchy American hops so well received. And uh, Do you think that we are going to start seeing the craft beer, the hop-driven uh, doors kicked o- open in Germany a little bit more? 
Yeah, absolutely. Not only the <clears throat> the interest in brewing more hoppy beers, but I, I have to say, you know, the original German Pils is a bitter, beautiful Pils that has some hops in it. It's nowhere near a West Coast IPA, um, which is the other extreme in that. But there's a huge hop tradition here. Uh, it's great. It's wonderful. But, yeah, we see more and more interest for more hoppy beers, pails, and IPAs. Yeah, and you see it like a, a generational effect as well. The younger German, uh, whether it's brewers, hop farmers, beer drinkers, the younger generation seems to be much more uh, willing to experiment with the IPAs, and they're coming by the booth and they're asking questions, um, whereas the older generation still, I think, does have that same uh, viewpoint that you talked about of, oh, there's, it's too overhopped. But uh, I think there is a, a real uh, generational shift with the younger German uh, farmers, brewers, and beer drinkers toward seeing what this uh, IPA craze is all about that's happening all around them. Patrick, because that's an interesting thing, because I've spoken to a lot of brewers, and craft beer has been around now for long enough that... There are even generations of craft brewers where there are the first wave, then there are the guys that came in, and the guys who were inspired by the pale ales, and they drove the big hoppy IPAs. And then, you know, 10 years ago, we had the, the, the bitterness wars where whoever had the most bitter beer. And some of those guys roll their eyes about things like Nipahs and, you know, the, 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 the juicy IPAs, and they say, well, I've got to let my young brewers make one just to keep them interested. Is that a little bit like the... What you're saying about seeing the younger German brewers wanting to do what they're doing elsewhere? Yeah, and I, I think it's mostly a, just an evolution of, of beer and of the style. And we, we feel very fortunate that it's hop-forward beers that are really driving a lot of that innovation. Um, since we're hop growers and hop people, uh, I mean, it's, it's very fortunate for us. But... Um, the, I think it's just evolution. I mean, if you look at if you look at beer and and American craft beer, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale was a very very hoppy beer, um, and it's it's evolution and not revolution, right? It's it's brewers taking and tweaking and changing recipes and trying to stand out. In the United States, we have 7,500 craft brewers. How do you stand out? in an environment where you have 7,500 competitors. You have to do something different. And so New England IPAs was a, an evolution of IPA where those East Coast brewers were seeing West Coast brewers selling hoppy beers in their market because the consumer wanted a hoppy beer. Well, how do you stand out when you have Stone and Russian River and Sierra Nevada selling beer 3,000 miles from home? You do something different. And, and they invented the, the hazy IPA, the juicy IPA, whatever you want to call it. And now you're seeing that shift back to the West Coast and West Coast brewers trying to make those styles as well. And so I think it's a natural evolution of, of the style and that IPA is an IPA. If you've had one IPA, you've had one IPA, and now there's a proliferation from session to 100 IBU, double IPAs, to juicy IPAs. The common thread is hop forward, but they're all very, very distinct different styles, and you're starting to see that over here as well in Europe, and it's, it's a real positive development, I think. We might even put a pin in that and come back to it, but 
One of the, it was, it was interesting at the start of that, um, Patrick was saying, and Ryan, you said off mic, Pete and I have just come back from a trip uh, through Yakima, and on the way up there we stopped up at Frame, and I was absolutely blown away by the, how clean their beers were, and their Pilsner, and everyone had a Pilsner, but you stopped off at, at around about the same time and had a slightly different experience, or you, you had a slightly different interpretation of, uh, of, what, of what you were told at the brewery. Yeah, no, I've, I've uh, been asked many times if, like, lagers and Pilsner beers are going to take over the market space. Um, and I've really been mindful of that because I do. I love a good Pilsner. I love a good hoppy lager. Um, but they don't use as many hops as an IPA. So I'm always... And that's going to worry you a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Without, uh, without hoppy beer, you know, our, our energies and efforts are a lot less. Um, so... I was visiting some of our hop gr uh, farmers, grower owners down in Oregon, uh, in the Woodburn area, and I drove back, love a good dinner at Freem, so I stopped in there and I pulled up to the bar and there's five or six lager beers on, on the uh, menu, and then five or six of their wood age beers, which I love both, but I don't love as much as their hoppy beers, and there was only two on, and I said, what's going on here? Like, you guys stop making hoppy beers? Is, are my fears come true? And the guy says, no, man, we're sold out because they just sold out. The demand is so strong for hoppy beer still. Um, and it was a big eye-opener for me. So we're seeing the lagers, and they're making lagers, and there's interest in lagers, but the hop-driven beers are still what's selling. Yeah, it's still selling. And, and especially, like Pat said, those New England IPAs are still selling because they're they're even more approachable. You know, for someone who's a little bit afraid or timid of bitterness or doesn't pair food well with bitterness, like those New England IPAs are, are strong and growing. Actually, you might have, sorry, Pat, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I was just going to add that there's, there, there's a, a huge ocean of difference, though, between the light lagers that still dominate the market by volume and IPA, whether it's a session IPA or anything else. And so the... Uh, increased popularity of craft lagers and craft pilsners helps fill that void and helps introduce people who are who are light beer drinkers into something that's a little more approachable and a little more familiar to them and then that gets them in the door to their to their local craft brewery that they have something that they feel like they can drink they go for a couple of weeks they like that pilsner okay now I want to try the pale ale now I want to try the IPA and once you go to IPA it's really hard to go back and so that I think that the, the increasing popularity of craft lagers and craft pilsners is a very, very important uh, next step for the craft industry to take to broaden the appeal of craft beer outside of the IPA lover. And that to really continue the growth in craft beer in developed markets like uh, the Pacific Northwest and the United States, we need to start closing that gap between an IPA and a light lager. And the craft brewers are the ones that are most set up to do that, to start closing that gap and then bringing those drinkers into the craft fold, bring them into the tent, and then begin to sell them IPAs as they continue their journey from light beer drinker up to an IPA connoisseur. It's interesting you say that, though, because one of the, um, one of the things that we've noticed about the low flavor, or the, the, the low bitterness of some of the juicy IPAs, and... I take your point, Ryan, that 
the bitterness of IPA, people talk about beer and food matching, and it's one of the things that's I've always made me, you know, it's been Hop's dirty little secret that bitter beers, or the, the really high IBU beers, tend to overwhelm a lot of the subtlety of, of food. You know, if you've got a big blue cheese or a steak, it, it, it works quite nicely, but the, the lower bitterness when you're getting the hop flavours, it gives a much wider uh, ability for um, beer to work with food. Yeah, we see that a lot in different parts of the world. You know, throughout Latin America, the food is very spicy. Uh, and so we're seeing the term down there is nipas. New England IPAs, nipas, are very popular because it's that pairing. And I don't know if it's even intentional, but it is something to be mindful of. And then we see that throughout Asia, our, our Asia markets, of this interest in that fruity flavors, soft, approachable beer, but pairs very well with a spicy, uh, dynamic type of food. But then, Patrick, the other thing you brought on is that not everyone likes, quite apart from the positives of that, not everyone likes bitterness. And is the risk that we're seeing um, through some of these juicy IPAs beer becoming trivialised and silly? Um, just in terms of the, 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 the when you take juiciness to too much of an extreme? Yeah, I mean, there can be too much of a good thing. Uh, but is it a good thing? I guess that's my question. Yeah, I mean, it, well, I, I guess that's up to the consumer to decide, right? Because I never would have guessed uh, that that some beer styles that have gained the popularity that they have would have. So I'm I'm not a perfect uh, perfect predictor of what the consumer is gonna gonna desire. And and that's one of the great things about about at least um, you know in the United States and the the diverse craft beer industry that we have and the the innovation that the craft brewers are, are showing and the responsiveness to consumer demands. And so ultimately it's a consumer that chooses. I can sit here all day and say that I don't like beers that are hazy that I can't see through, but that doesn't matter if that's what the consumer's buying. And so it's up to us to respond to what the consumer wants. And craft brewers are, are uniquely positioned because of their proximity to the consumer. And increasingly in the United States, more and more beer is being sold over the counter at the brewery. And so the distance from the consumer to the brewer is infinitely short at that point. And so we get great feedback in those settings of what the consumer wants. And you can see it daily when you close the till what beers are selling and where the velocity is. And that, that gives those brewers such great feedback as to what the consumer wants. And so I think that yeah, I mean, we, we could sit here and, and talk all day about this style or that style, but if it's selling and if that's what the consumer wants, that's a direction that we need to go. And you raised a really good point. It was something that w was really eye-opening for me when I was over um, in, in Yakima, and one of the hop growers said, Nipahs have been one of the best things for small brewers because you have to go into the brew pub, and you can't compete with that style of beer because it doesn't travel well, it doesn't package well. Um, so on one hand it's working really well, but will the next thing be looking at how we can make that style of beer or approximate it so we can package it, we can send it, um, or, or do you think that that is the winning edge for small local brewers to get into their communities? I, actually, I think, Matt, that it's both. Um, I think that for small brewers that are starting up in their local 
uh, you know, in their local community, that doing something like that that doesn't travel well is an absolute differentiator. We all know that fresh beer is better, right? And so if you're starting a brewery in your local community, uh, you have an advantage that a brewer from 500, 1,000 miles away doesn't, doesn't have. You're right there in the consumer. But the capability of the larger brewers technically with their labs, their quality control, will allow them to approximate those styles and make them travel well. And we see that this year with one of the fastest growing new brands in the packaged market in the United States is Sierra Nevada's Hazy Little Thing. So they took the New England IPA style and there's no brewery in the United States that has better technical capabilities than Sierra Nevada. Their people, their their labs, I mean, they're, they're state of the art and I think everybody in the U.S. craft industry probably agrees. And they've found a way to make that beer travel. And so, will every brewery be able to do that? No. But for local breweries, they can do something that Sierra Nevada can't. If you're a local brewer in the middle of the country and you're 1,500 miles away from either one of Sierra Nevada's production facilities, you have an advantage that Sierra Nevada doesn't. You can sell beer to the consumer the week that it was that it was finished and packaged. Sierra can't do that. But Sierra can do something that the local brewer can't, and that's package a shelf-stable hazy IPA and get it on the grocery store shelf so that that consumer can then put that six-pack in the refrigerator at home and enjoy it when they're not at the brewery. So I think it is both. And, and the nice thing about having 7,500 breweries is you're going to have 7,500 different ways of figuring out the problem, and, and some brewers will, will be very successful in doing so. That raises an interesting point, though. Small breweries are competing in their local market because they don't package. Once you get to the Sierra Nevada size, you've got the legacy, but you don't have the cool factor necessarily of the small little breweries. And you do start butting up against the AB InBevs that has just bought another portfolio of breweries and things. And is craft beer inherently self-limiting? Because once you do get to a certain size, you're not going to be able to match it with the... There's such a huge jump to, to the big guys that you're actually competing with. Yeah, no, I think that's a extremely good question. And what Pat was talking about is that evolution, that continuous improvement that everyone needs to get better. The other factor that's very meaningful to us is that beer, craft beer, all beer is about community. And that's a big part of the equation, a variable in the equation to success. So 7,500 breweries, if they have community, if they have involvement of their local community, they're going to be successful. And hopefully their beer is also good. Um, so that, that's a really big variable that is often overlooked, but is a huge part of this of what we're seeing here at Brow is all of these individuals yes they love hoppy beer and they love something new they love being a part of a community a part of a grower own story of a bunch of hop farmers who have traveled all the way from Yakima Washington to be here in one of the most historic beering beer parts of the world that's special and that's unique and I think that community variable has to be talked about and should be part of every brewery's uh, focus is being part of something uh, involved in their community. And certainly there are, I mean, upper limits to the amount of craft beer that can be sold, right? I mean, we're not going to be pouring IPA in our breakfast cereal. So there are limits to where we can get to with craft beer. I mean, that's that's the nature of, of 
growth in a you know in a country that you know population growth is fairly slow i mean at some point yes craft beer is self-limiting to answer your question um but because of these emerging business models of selling beer over your own counter you can have breweries be financially successful and sustainable at much smaller volumes than we ever could in the past 15 years ago 10 years ago breweries could not have a sustainable future at 500 barrels of beer a year production but now with the consumer interest in buying beer at the place of manufacture and the margins that come with that, right? Because now the brewer is capturing the distributor margin and the retailer margin in his own uh, in his own tap room, and doesn't have all the costs associated with it. So that model is more sustainable at a smaller volume. So that works, and you don't have to get to the size of Sierra Nevada to start running into those issues of growth that you talked about. I mean, Sierra Nevada is one of the largest craft breweries in the country. My family operates. We're about number 115 in size, and we are way, way smaller than that. Uh, so, so Bal Balbreak is 115? Somewhere in that neighborhood, and I might get that number about, you know, a little wrong, but it's somewhere in that neighborhood. We haven't cracked the top 100 in volume yet, but we're seeing that. and We're only distributed in essentially three U.S. states in the Pacific Northwest, but we're running into some of that. I mean, it's a competitive marketplace, but that competition's a good thing. It forces us all to to make better beer. The consumer is, you know, discerning now. Back in the mid 1990s, when craft beer had its initial kind of bump, and quality wasn't as big of a concern, you had breweries just pumping beer out into the market because there was, you know, th there was money to be made. And those breweries aren't around anymore. And so now the breweries that are going to be successful, like Ryan's talking about. You have to make good beer. If you don't make good beer, you're not going to be around in 24 months. I can guarantee that. Because there's too many other people that are making good beer that are going to take your market from you. So it, it's self-reinforcing that the quality is going to, going to continue to get better. Um, but there, there are limits. I mean, that, that selling the beer over your own counter doesn't scale. Sierra Nevada can't sell a million barrels over their own counter. That's impossible. Um, Unless they had, I don't know, a thousand locations. It's just not possible. Um, doesn't scale well. So I think it's healthy for the industry to have this proliferation of business models that allows somebody to be successful in a small community with a 500 barrel a year production and also allows somebody like the Sierra Nevadas of the world to be successful and have a national brand. But I think the days of like new national brands are coming to an end. If you're not already a national brand, you're probably never going to be one. I wouldn't recommend starting a brewery today in the United States with aspirations to sell your beer in all 50 states. It's too competitive. Those days are over. Focus on your local market. Do it well. Joe, these blokes are doing all of the work, so I'm going to throw a question to you. We'll talk a little bit about what's happening in the hop harvest. We've just seen the 2019 hop harvest take place in Yakima. Tell me a little bit about the... the, the, the trends, the statistics, was it a good year? What are we going to be seeing in 2020? Yeah, so overall it was a fantastic growing season for the most part. Um, you know, in Yakima we have hot summers and cold winters and uh, 2019 was about as abnormal as it can get in, in every season. 
Uh, we had snow on the ground up until March, and typically that, you know, we're out basically replanting rhizomes at that point. So uh, just the, the inability to get out in the fields, we were set back about a month behind just from the jump. Um, we had a huge expansion of baby acres this year too, and the, the lack of heat in the spring and throughout the summer kind of the baby crop struggled a little bit overall. Um, but in the summertime too, we're typically in, in Yakima getting triple degree or triple digit, you know, temperature days, probably about a month out of the summer typically. And this year, I think we had three days over 100 degrees. So that's around about 35, 40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's around 30 just for the listeners at home. Um, so, I mean, while it might have been abnormal, it was actually really good for the plants. I think it was a nice, consistent growth uh, pattern for the plants and and the quality really shows. It is one of the best years so far with, with my experience. This episode of Beer is a Conversation is brought to you by Unleashed Software. Unleashed is more than inventory management software for brewers. It's a system that runs your whole business operations and gives you an unfair advantage. With Unleashed, you can create custom recipes effortlessly track your cereal and batch numbers and understand your stock levels at all times at every location. Learn how Unleash can help you run and grow your brewery at unleashsoftware.com forward slash brew. And, and what varieties were, were big performers this year in terms of sales or, you know, there was more acreage of this year what came back a little bit sure so as far as expansion goes uh, we're, we're still trying to catch up with demand for a lot of those big juicies so we're doing what we can with citra and mosaic uh, we're also really starting to ramp up production of sabro and some of our other experimentals that we're really excited about um, there was some expansion a lot of expansion in pato which is which is our alpha variety I'll just tell you because Sabro is now, if I'm remembering, it, it's the one that's got like a bit of a barrel aging characteristic, a little bit of coconut, or because Scotty Hargraves uh, was raving about it. Yeah, so there there is a bit of the coconut, a little bit of the wood in Sabro, but really it really shines through in, in the sister of Sabro, which is HBC 472. Um, that is a strange hop in, in every way, um, and it really does impart almost a barrel aged flavor in beer. Um, we actually have had a couple of really nice examples of uh, 472 uh, IPAs on tap here at Brow, which for me it was it's usually kind of a uh, a little bit of a strange hop forward beer type of hop. Um, I, I think it really floats well in big dark beers, um, stuff that you might might barrel age typically. Um, but it is it's a, it's such a dynamic and novel and novel hop that. You know, we, we're always excited about it, and there's quantities to be had. Um, Sabro has, shares some of those characteristics, but is way more on the tropical, uh, very punchy, stone fruit side of things, uh, with still a little bit of that coconut and cream notes that, that 472 shows. So, what, Ryan, uh, this is probably a question for you. At what point does 472 get christened and get its own name? Yeah, it's a tremendously good question. Um, so we have an experimental line for a hop to come to market usually takes about 10 years uh, roughly 10 years when it has a number like this and it's in the market like 472 um, it's in an elite status and right now we have six in the elite status and it's a possibility that none of them will come right because next year we'll have a few more that 
or show promise in the market. But they're in like not year nine or ten, and so they're out in the market being brewed with. Of course, the overall expectation is that they're going to be good, sustainable for the growers, and they're going to do something unique in beer. So I don't know if 472 will get a name or not. That's that's for the market to uh, to tell us. Yeah, man, just to piggyback on, on Ryan there, you know, Jason Peralt, uh, our head breeder at Yakima Chief Ranches, really likes to talk about hops being pulled into the market. You know, any given year, we've got between 40 and 50,000 you know, genetically unique individuals in our seedling plots. Um, it's kind of a fail-fast type of breeding program where if, it does, if it's not checking all the boxes agronomically and in the brew house, it's going to be ejected quite quickly. Um, being a grower-owned company, it's, it's imperative that we take care of, of our growers as well. It can't just be an exceptionally novel aroma hop that brewers are clamoring for and not make sense for our growers to grow. Right, it's, it's a lot of boxes that need to be checked on both sides. And by that you mean yield, pest resistance, um, all of those sorts of things. Absolutely. So, so that, that, and they, they can make money from it, not just have to grow it. Sure, it, it's yield, it's, it's disease and pest resistance. It's also another thing that not a lot of people think of is, is harvest window. Okay, so we, you, you go out to the facilities in Yakima, like you've seen, Matt, and there are these big gargantuan facilities, but there's capacity restraints. You know, Pat's farm can only pick so many acres of hops a day. And there's nothing you can do to increase that. He's got capacity in his picker, capacity in his kiln, and so on forth. Um, and so for us as a breeding company, it's really important that we key in on, that's a, a major criteria, is when it's actually ripe. So we don't want to go in and stack several you know, highly coveted varieties on top of each other in the same picking window, because we're not going to be able to pick them on time. And so we, we have prescribed pick harvest windows for all of our brands and we're very stringent with our growers on enforcing those harvest windows because it's based on previous year's data and we want to provide the best quality hops we can. Um, so to answer your question, uh, long story short, it's, there's a lot of different boxes that need to be checked, but that's one that like, not really many people think about. Um, but on, on the farmer's side, it's incredibly important to make sure we're fulfilling harvest windows. How confident are you about a hop like 472? The, the, the fact that you're showcasing it somewhere like Brow, you're stirring up demand and getting it out there, you know, could it be you know, something that just it doesn't work? Or So the one thing with 472 that may or may not keep it from becoming a brand one day is actually the, the, the cone morphology, the actual shape and structure of, of the cone. Um, this isn't dimples, is it? No. Dimple, oh. Dimples is 692. Matt already knows dimples? Wow. Um, so with, with 472, you know, obviously the aroma is magnificent. The, the, novel, the novelty of it is unmatched. Um, but the structure itself, that lady just ate hops over there. Um, <laughs> and now she's spitting out. <laughs> it's very bit time. Very bit time. Um, and so with 472, the actual cone structure is kind of a detriment. A lot of, a lot of the, the picking mechanisms that we use in the industry are predicated on air. And, and belts, and it's predicated on the idea that hops are going to be that are going they're going to roll, and everything else that's flat is going to be carried away with fans and, and different belts. So 472 has some really kind of flared out bracts and bracteals um, that a lot of it might get carried, you know, instead of going to the kiln, that might get carried to the garbage. And so it's it's a real shame for a grower to put that effort in all season and grow that crop, and then watch a lot of it not be utilized. Um, 
And so the fact that 472 exhibits all of these really exceptional aromatic qualities is the only reason it's kind of still around. Um, if it were, you know, if it were a standard cone structure, it would probably be a brand by this point. Um, but it, it, because it's so unique, uh, Jason wants to keep it around, use it for germplasm, use it for other breeding, breeding uh, adventures, and also just if, if there's a niche, if there's even a small niche for that hop, it's worth keeping, keeping a couple acres around. And so 472 is kind of the first of probably what we'll call like kind of a, I don't know. We call it the concept, concept series. series. So, um, so it's a, it's a it, it, It's kind of like uh, when you see the fashion parades and they're wearing ridiculous dresses that no one would ever wear yeah. in the street, yeah. but it just, people might yeah. pick up little bits. Of or you go to the Detroit Auto Show and you see what, you know, Ford and General Motors, like their vision for the future, that's a little bit like what we're doing with the concept series. And 472 is a perfect example of that. We, I couldn't actually think of a better example of a variety that fits that. It's not perfect from an agronomic standpoint, but it exhibits some really interesting, completely unique novel characters. And so we, uh, so we're, we're keeping it in this, you know, in this program that uh, allows us to have enough production of it to get it out to brewers, to get the feedback. So when we're showcasing it here at Brow, it's really to get feedback. Like, is this something that brewers want, that consumers want? And if so, let's find a way to breed around the, you know, negatives that a variety may have and maintain those positives. So it's, and who knows, maybe 472 will uh, will someday be a brand, but at least right now, it's definitely got a future in this program as something that's completely unique, very special, and we're going to find a way to to get that into the market in the in the most responsible way possible. It's interesting because we spend a lot of time talking about beer as an agricultural product, but when you see that, like it's a hop that is obviously loved and has potential, but it's just got. A cowlick, basically, <laughs> you know. So, you know, so we we we're, we're going to send it off to the orphanage just because it looks funny. Yeah, it, it, it's a kid that looks funny, and you're just going to send it off to the orphanage, and that, that's. But 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 it is, and it's. I don't know how you guys do it in Australia. We don't send our funny-looking kids to the orphanage. <laughs> we would we would have all been adopted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My dad would have gotten rid of me years ago. <laughs> But I'm still here, so I don't know. But, but I, I guess, I guess point, I'm lucky I'm not Australian. The, the point I was making is you, it, it, it's bred and it's genetics, and you can't just um, pull out one gene, inject another gene in, and have the perfect hop. Yeah, and Matt, I'm going to send you this photo that we're looking at right now. It's side by side. Those are two sisters. That's uh, 472 on the left, and she's all flared out. Looks completely different to her other sister on the right, which is Sabro. And that was some of what Joe was talking about. You can imagine I'm trying to pick this thing off a bind, even by hand, but in these big machines, Sabro picks much better. Both very unique, but from a grower perspective, on the picking perspective, Sabro outperforms her wild little sister, 472, in the picking process. Now, I did mention dimples, and I'm not sure who can talk about it. You're not going to kill off dimples? Because that was a good-looking hop, and it tasted good. Yeah, Dimples isn't going anywhere. 
so 692 is actually a daughter of Sabro. Uh, it shares some of the similar tropical stone fruity characteristics. Uh, but for me, it's just a, a huge pink grapefruit, uh, overwhelmingly just ripe grapefruit. And the really, really exciting thing about that one is what you smell in the field, what you smell in the dried whole cones is what you're tasting and smelling in the finished beer. Um, that's not always the case. I mean, there's some, some varieties, some experimentals, even, even some current brands that you know, smell one way in the field and you get really excited, but it just doesn't necessarily perform in the brew house. And conversely, there's some in the field that are just kind of ho-hum, but in the brew house, they just, they just perform. Uh, 692 is, is really like kind of a what you smell is what you get type hop. And uh, we're incredibly, incredibly excited about that one from our, from our breeding program. How far is a beer like, is a, is a hop like that off? It's distinctive, you're, you're loving the, the, the flavors, it's agronomically okay. So what sort of window are we looking at before it, it goes out? So will Dimples be the trade name, or is that just a new? Will Dimples be the name for HBC 692? That's a big question, uh, and I don't know the answer to, but yeah, tell us, market. Matt, you have a lot of reach it down there in Australia. Let's get the vote out there. Send in name suggestions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah send it to Peralt at... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so Matt, with, with Dimples is obviously... Uh, it has a, something to do with the cone structure again. So you saw the photo back there behind you. There's, that's why we're calling it dimples. It's got, it's got these cleft bracts, which is very unique. Uh, Jason said he's only seen it once before and, and across 15, 20 years ago. Um, I've never seen it personally. It's a very unique cone structure. So that's where the dimples nickname comes from at this point. Um, as far as where it is in the breeding program, uh, it's probably only about five or six years in. Typically, it's about a decade process from cross to commercialization within our breeding program. Uh, because it does exib uh, exhibit such dynamic and really powerful aromas, we're fast-tracking it a little bit, if you will. Uh, we're really ramping up as much propagation as we can, so we're, we're expanding that variety as quickly as possible over the last couple years. And uh, as, as long as we continue to get the feedback that we have been getting and, and brewer acceptance, um, there's a good chance of that, that that could be uh, a name, some uh, named variety at some point. Okay, just to finish up, I don't want to keep you guys any longer, but I'm just going to ask each of you, look into the crystal ball, prognosticate 2020, what are going to be the, based on what you're hearing in places like this, what do you think we're going to see happening in the, the, the beer scene in 2020? Everyone's making faces. Uh, you 2020? 2020, yeah, so... so what, what do you think is going to be, the, the 2020 will be the year of, the, the hoppy sours will be the year of? Okay. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the, Ryan is probably out in the market way more than, than Patrick and I. I know that, you know, personally, I love beer. Uh, my favorite beer is usually the one in my hand. Okay, and that's, that's a saying that, that goes around, but it's true. An appreciation, a strong appreciation for styles and, and regional uh you know, specialties is exciting, and that, that keeps our beer world, um, you know, it's the golden age of beer. So where the consumers take it, if we keep relying on millennials, who knows? Um, but beer as far as... Okay, boomer. I keep, I keep getting told that. I, I don't really buy in, but I guess so. Um, and don't so, denigrate your own generation. So, so who knows, man? Um, yeah, Ryan probably has better. He's in the market a lot more than I am, but 
Stylistically, it's tough to tell. I would say that the, at least in the United States, we will see a continued proliferation of IPA. IPA continues to become more and more mainstream. I would predict that craft loggers, craft pilsners will continue to gain share. Um, will be among the fastest growing styles in the craft beer segment. But that uh, IPA is the, the 800-pound gorilla that, uh, you know, that really continues to drive the industry. And then all of IPA's variations. And we talked about it earlier with the evolution of IPA and all the different subclasses of IPA. And I think you'll continue to see innovation around IPA and hop-forward styles and people doing hop-forward beers in different ways um, because that seems to be where the consumer wants to be. I mean, I don't think we're going to see Bach be the next IPA. Um, and maybe we will, and if maybe I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, yeah, maybe Doppelbach. Maybe a Dunkelweizen, I don't know. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, if I'm wrong about that, I'll happily correct the record next year at Brow here. Um, but, uh, no, I think, uh, and then I think globally, we're seeing increased velocity of acceptance of these, and I hesitate to use American style as the descriptor, but these, these styles that America adopted from other places, Americanized them maybe, and then exported that like style to the world. And so these American style IPAs, which of course are distinct from British, you know, traditional IPAs, but I think that we'll continue to see that. I mean, we've had meetings with you know, here at Brow, Dutch brewers, Norwegian brewers, Swedish brewers that all want to brew, Thailand, Vietnam, that all want to brew what they call American-style IPA. So I think that the big trend that we're looking at is how does that globalization of hop-forward styles, how does that change our business? How does that change what we do on the farm? How does that change what we do at Yakima Chief? Um, and it's it's extremely exciting. I mean, I've been in this industry my entire life, and if you asked me when I was a kid if things would look anything close to the way they did today, in my wildest dreams, I never would have guessed that brewers would be putting the quantity of hops in beer that they're putting now and actually selling it. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's actually crazy, but... Uh, it's exciting to see what's happening in Australia. Um, you know, we've we've had the good fortune of, of becoming really good friends with a lot of the brewers down there. Uh, we've got a great partnership with Cryer Malt um, down in Australia, uh, and it's it's really exciting for us as farmers up in the northwestern corner of the United States to get that much closer to brewers halfway around the world in Australia and everywhere else, and 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 learn more about what is happening in those markets and how what we do can make their beer better and get and contribute to each other's success. So wh wherever the trends go, we'll follow. Uh, you know, we mentioned it earlier, we don't lead the consumer. The consumer pulls. The consumer buys from the brewer. The brewer buys from us. We, re we just respond. Wherever the consumer wants us to go, that's where we'll go, and, and we're excited to be there. Ryan, last word with you. You've heard all of that? Yeah, that comes directly from an American hop farmer, multi-generational hop farmer, 
And I think that's what I see in 2020, is these community-based, people supporting each other for a cause and being part of something, is what we're going to see growth in. And whether that's a Bordeaux IPA from our friends down in France, or uh, a new hazy IPA in some part of the world, it's all going to come down to being a part of something that's meaningful and unique. And uh, it's something I'm really proud of. That's why I work for this company, uh, working for hop growers specifically, who are passionate, just like Patrick said, about their brewing partners. Is that, is that why, because um, you guys have just re recently released a Pink Boots blend, is, is that why, in addition to the, the varieties you're known for, that you are looking at putting your weight behind uh, you know, a, a blend that can aid the Pink Boots Society? Yeah, that's exactly why. Is those community-based blends are giving back to those communities that have supported us. Pink Boots has been in the U.S. for a long time, originally started by Terry Ferendorf. Uh, but now as we've saw and appreciated that community, we're creating these blends that add value to beer. Whatever beer style brewers come up with to brew with that, uh, that hop, that pellet blend, but we also give a donation back to Pink Boots. So yeah, down in Australia, we'll be giving that donation directly to Australian brewers for whoever brews it. And uh, it's a major part of our missions is to give back to the community that's always supported us. Well, guys, uh, Ryan, Joe, and Patrick, thank you very much for joining us for this conversation about beer at uh, Brow. It's a real privilege to be here. And uh, it, it didn't quite go where I planned to when we started, but it's been a fascinating conversation, which is uh, how beer conversation should be. So thank you and enjoy the rest of Brow. Thanks, Thank man. you, you too. Yeah, I appreciate Thanks it a lot, man. And that was Ryan Hopkins, Patrick Smith and Joe Catron. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Brews News bottle opener. And thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation. 